Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about making movies from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Seabiscuit, a 2003 release directed by Gary Ross and starring Tobey Maguire, Jeff Bridges, and Chris Cooper. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has 77% positive reviews, and the critics' consensus reads, a life-affirming, if saccharine, epic treatment of a spirit-lifting figure in sports history. But as usual, that's not what we're here to talk about today. I worked on Seabiscuit as one of three credited second-second ADs, and I'm joined today by some fellow crew members. My first guest is Mike Judd, who worked on Seabiscuit as a production assistant. Mike, welcome to Below the Lot. Glad to be here. Mike, for our listeners who might not be familiar with your resume, I want to share that IMDb also says you're known for Planet of the Apes and Terminator 3, where you again worked as a PA, Grand Torino, where you worked as the second second AD, and Own Worst Enemy, a 2012 comedy that you co-wrote, co-produced, and co-directed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I started out uh, like many in the business as a production assistant, which is uh, one of the few non-union kind of routes into the union world of Hollywood filmmaking. And like most of us have the dream of you know making our own films, which uh, Own Worst Enemy was a part of that that my wife and I made a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I worked up the ranks from PA to assistant director as what you were on um, Seabiscuit. Now I'm working as a first AD, currently on a TV show called Young Sheldon. You know, Mike, I think you've had the career that I once plotted for myself before ended up taking a different path. Uh, I'm really happy for you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Next, we're joined by Thomas Kruger, uh, who worked with us on Seabiscuit as the on-set medic. Thomas, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? Thomas, IMDb says you're also known for Boogie Nights, Punch Drunk Love, Pearl Harbor, and In Her Shoes. But I know, like myself, you've since left the industry. What are you doing now? Well, right now I left the industry, went back into the Army, and then since I retired out of the Army, I now work in the federal government. Thomas, glad you could join us today. And finally, in our fourth chair, we're joined by Mark Munoz, who worked on Seabiscuit as a stunt jockey. Mark, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mark, you've got a pretty extensive stunt resume, and while IMDb does call out that you're known for Planet of the Apes and Battle Los Angeles, they also, for reasons that are inexplicable to me, choose to highlight Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay and Zack and Miri Make a Porno. And so my question for you is, which of these four films would you say involve the most dangerous stunts? Well, I would say out of those four films, uh, Harold and Kumar, I spent five and a half hours getting makeup just to be a one-eyed Cyclops redneck kid. Uh, I was blind for two whole days, 12 hours a day, wearing that makeup, and that was pretty crazy and dangerous, yeah. Every one of these films is an adventure, and uh, what are you working on these days, Mark? I was working with uh, Mr. Judd on Young Sheldon, and I am now on a new sitcom called The Neighborhood. Well, thanks all of you guys for joining today. We want to talk about Seabiscuit. Guys, to get into this, I think I'd like to just start with illustrating and some stories about what a large production this was. As I mentioned earlier, we had three second seconds. I, in fact, uh, was a second second that did advanced work, went out to Kentucky early while filming was going on. Um, I know some other ADs were traveling as well on lots of levels. This was a really big production. We don't have robots or superheroes or anything in, in Seabiscuit, but logistically, I think it was probably just as tough as any of those kind of Marvel big tentpole movies. I mean, we were in three different states. 
a ton of horses, horse wranglers, stunts, a typical call sheet, you know, would have two sides to it. We had four sides to ours stapled together. You know, there's a lot of personnel, a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, it, w- it was quite a logistical challenge. Yeah, I would just just to add to that, being the production medic and being responsible for ensuring that there was coverage across the stunt teams, the rigging teams, the striking teams, and then have to account for the kind of resources you need for the huge extras. It, it was quite a daunting production just in terms of logistics. Yeah, I was on it from pre-production when we were getting horses ready to reshoots three months before they came out. They literally built a racetrack on a soundstage in Universal, just the shoot. It was a quarter mile long that was overwhelming. When I walked in, it was unbelievable how much they had put into this movie from beginning to end. Thanks to Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy and Gary Ross and all the production team, it was very, very intense. Thomas, I want to go back to something you mentioned casually earlier about the uh, um, for those large scenes. Yeah, we had inflatable background. I don't know exactly the number, but I want to say we put 10,000 blow up torsos in the stands and then put on the largest days another 3,000 um, non-paid background we moved around and then another 500 to 600 costumed prepared background. Uh, those are the large days you're talking about, I think. Yeah, I think we had a couple of those big days in Kentucky and one in, in California. Yeah, those that was one of the areas of what I was specializing in. So I went out to Kentucky early to get folks ready and then prepared for, I think you're right, Mike, our two days of filming with these large crowds who were incentivized by an outside company to show up, but they were not actually being paid directly. But then we divided them into groups so we could move them around. I had about 50 production assistants just dedicated to managing that crowd. Um, and it sounds like a lot of people, but when you think about a horse racing track that seats 40,000 people and with a horse running down the track, you're going to see almost all of it as the camera pans. Yeah, we needed a lot of folks there to try to make it look busy, even well beyond what we actually had just to fill it up. Speaking of the inflatable crowd, it, it, that was the movie that started that whole business, really. Joe Biggins, I think, was a producer's assistant and came up with the idea and designed them, had them built. And I think at the end of the movie, bought them all back from Seabiscuit. And he, he was off to the races from there for, for many years, doing a lot of sports movies, a lot of crowd work. And uh, even to the point where he got sued by a competing company that claimed that they had gotten the idea first. And, and he he fought them because he said, this, I, you know, I developed this. I'm not letting this go. And he won. And it was front page of one of the uh, sections of the L.A. Times, I think, that lost. <laughs> but it was an incredible little business that got built out of uh, Seabiscuit. Yeah, I think the challenge before that, I think they had done a lot of cardboard cutouts. If you were just doing one angle into the stands of a sporting event, that would work. But and again, because our cameras are moving along with the horses down the racetrack and different angles, very quickly those two-dimensional figures would have been revealed, well, as being the cardboard cutouts they were. But with a three-dimensional blow-up and then a t-shirt and a hat, and if we moved live people around them, the whole thing looked much busier than it was. Those are some of my favorite days. Those days were incredible. When it really came together, you had all these moving pieces, complicated day, you don't know what's going to happen, and you managed to pull it off. That was fun. Just to add to what you just said, Skid, I was thinking about, you know, you and I are both out of the business, and I kind of, when I look at role models, coming out, like, who can I look to, to as, like, a leadership role model? And I think about um, Frank Marshall and, and Catherine Kennedy. Clearly, Kathleen Kennedy stands above most people as a role model for leadership. The decisions that she would have to make, high-risk decisions on, that, on that, that movie, and how she would come to those decisions, 
really kind of inspired me. I mean, I was fortunate as a medic in the sense that because I'm not always busy, because medics usually, when things are going well, they're not busy, I got to observe a lot of things. I get to watch things. And I swear, Seabiscuit proved instrumental in a lot of my development, even outside the business. As big a, a, an operation and production it was, that there was so much chemistry to make it probably more, one of the best uh, sports-related movies ever made. Let's talk a little more about that chemistry on the set. When a crew is out on location, um, often and with the cast as well, we're spending a lot of time together after the shoot, staying in the hotel together. Um, I think that really brings folks together. And I think this was a good one for that, at least for the time. Once the crew caught up with us in Kentucky, we loved having you guys there and just a good time hanging out. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, you know, I'd been in the business maybe two years at this point. A lot of the relationships that I still have today, yeah, I can trace back to some of those early films. And, uh, you know, there's still quite a few number of people from that show that, you know, I still talk to regularly today. You know, every, every film or every project you work on is, in some ways, it's like a year in high school or something. You know, you meet some new people. You, there's some old people that you've, you've worked with in the past and you move on to the next project and, you know, you get new ones again. I think some of those projects like that were, I mean, I was on that show for about six months. And you just, uh, you forge those relationships, you know, when you, you spend a lot of hours together, especially on the road, get to learn a lot about people and definitely came out of that film with um, a lot of new friends that have stayed to this day. When we were shooting in Keeneland, we had to go shoot in this other part of Lexington. It was outside of Lexington. And so here I am in, in Kentucky and, uh, and the rain. Well, first of all, the insanity of how beautiful Kentucky was. It looked like American royalty out there. Never seen anything like it. And then the, the torrential rains and the fact that we had to finish the shot. There was no way around. There was no reshoots. We were not coming back. We were on this tight schedule. It was a pretty brutal day. I don't think I ever, that, that's the one day that really sticks out to me. I think I saw everyone to grips, the electrics, everybody just hustling to get the shot done and cleaning up and striking. It was crazy. Another scene I remember specifically about Kentucky is while I was out there early getting background ready and preparing for our large days, the leaves had started to turn early. And there were some scenes they wanted of Toby riding the horse through the woods with the leaves set for fall. And so they actually had to interrupt the filming in California. And then the principals uh, and the director, um, Adam Salmon, our first AD, but a small group of folks came out just for the weekend so that we could get those shots and then uh, went back to L.A. to continue with the filming. But again, that's the scale of the production we were talking about, where they'll send a minimal crew halfway across the country in order just to catch two or three scenes in the movie. I mean, looking back at that whole movie, it's incredible just how many scenes there are and how many locations there are in that. The length of some of the scenes are really short, especially in you know, maybe the first third where they're setting up you know, the, the era and the, the, the depression. I mean, it's just incredible how many different sets and locations we had in this movie. When I watched the movie again recently, there's a scene of the jockeys who have gone down and are largely partying and having a good time when they're not out at the racetrack. I think that that was all set down in Tijuana. And there's a scene where a couple of jockeys are riding these large women down the hallway. Like they're just doing that, racing inside. Okay, so here, here's a, yeah, that was, that was me. And this is a funny thing. So it, in real life, that was the Molina Roja. And it was a bar, restaurant, hangar, hookers hangout uh, down in TJ. 
And I did win that match race. Um, <laughs> the, funny thing, the funny thing was the gal that I was riding was actually Gary Ross's tennis coach. Uh, Frank Marshall and Gary Ross intermittently would bring friends of theirs and give them a piece. And it was really a lot of fun. The guy on the other girl was actually Toby's chef, who was actually a little guy that wanted to be in the movie. And so Gary Ross said, well, could we make him look like a jockey? We spent one day teaching him how to swing a whip, and, you know, God bless, he got to have his, you know, 15 minutes fame in Seabiscuit. Let's go from the, the loose joking of the, the horse riding in Tijuana to the horse riding overall, which I think was one of our large logistical challenges on the film. Sometimes we're filming live, obviously. Sometimes we're putting somebody up on a ladder. Sometimes we're using mechanical horses. Like, there were many, many ways and different approaches and styles we did to basically pull all of that together. When they started pre-production for this, Mike Lanteri, who's a, an amazing uh, special effects guy, built this rig, which would actually have four moving uh, mechanical horses. And then they'd have a Hummer chasing him with cameras on it and process vehicles. And um, everywhere we went, they always made it uh, look so real combining the, the fake horses and the real horses and, of course, getting uh, 14 of the most amazing jockeys who were able to work as real jockeys in the movie uh, really made it that much more special. I believe that was a custom rig that was built for this, uh, you know, the faking of Toby up on the horse, the USS Seabiscuit, they dubbed it, where there were two mechanical horses attached to like a flatbed trailer that would also hold the cameras. And I remember some of the early testing of that at the Pomona racetrack out there before we started filming. And then a few years later, it was used again um, with Leonardo DiCaprio and the Aviator. And that particular year, that season, when we were uh, filming that, there were some wildfires out east. And I got a call one night saying, don't come into work. Our sets have burnt down. And that rig, the USSC biscuit, melted. It got caught up in the flames and just it was just a hunk of metal. At the end of that. So that was the uh, the death of the USS Seabiscuit. Yeah, a sad ending to uh, kind of a cool contraption for filming. Well, that cool contraption and all the other um, movie magic, if you will, to make these horse race scenes work. Uh, I think it's also uh, worth noting that filming with horses is extremely difficult from a logistical perspective. The horses can only run so many times a day and not right in a row. And so when you run with the horses... Like you have to have everything in place. There is no, it didn't go well and reset back to one when you're doing the horse racing. That was itself quite a difficult challenge. Maybe you guys can speak about the sort of difficulties in coordinating around that. Rusty Hendrickson and Rex Peterson were two of the guys that really uh, helped us work. Rusty's been around for a while. He would go around the country and reach out to his buddies because he would have to have four or five, sometimes six doubles of these horses. Uh, and they all had to stay conditioned. So while we weren't shooting, the jockeys would actually have to work with these horses to get them to where they weren't always on, you know, on go. Because 99% of the horses that we used in the movie were either ex-race horses or horses that were training to be race horses. So it was really imperative uh, that we worked with them literally seven days a week. And we're talking 70, 80 head of horses to fill a 12-horse field. Because like you said, they would only be able to go a quarter mile and, they would cut and, and, you know, if they were overrun two or three times, they would have to take a break, go to the barn and bring the next double that looked just like that same horse. Whether it was uh, Flying Ferrari, who was what the name of the favorite Seabiscuit, 
and all the other uh, great horses that uh, were using the movie. It was just an amazing operation that, that Rusty created uh, to make this movie work. One of the things that, just building what Mark said about the, uh, the horses, I can't forget about the jockeys. I mean, I never worked with jockeys before. I didn't, rec- didn't realize the amount of athleticism that it took to be a jockey. I mean, these guys are just, just literally world-class athletes. I learned so much about just the sport, the physical endurance it takes to be a jockey working on the on, on the on Sea Biscuit. Definitely new new uh, appreciation for the entire sport. Before we started filming, Mark, you guys were training out in Pomona, and we had uh, I was out there just to do some of the paperwork, and uh, there was a craft service set up. And Mark, you've been around the business for a while, but I think some of those guys were just pure jockeys, and I think that their eyes bulged when they saw all the snacks and the uh, the craft service table, which probably goes against most of the uh, jockeys' eating habits. Yeah, let me jump in on that. There, that was a big joke the whole time we were shooting because uh, the 14 jockeys, eight of them were still very active, riding in uh, different seasons, different places in the country. Some were East Coast, some were West Coast. Uh, and they were 5'6", five, 5'5". Five, five. Normally, they would be 140 pounds. But they had to maintain 112 pounds. And on a movie like Seabiscuit that fed the crew, the cast, the extras, and the jockeys as much as you wanted, and really quality food, some of them just ate and realized they were going to be on the movie long enough to, you know, when they got near the end of it, they could start cutting back. Uh, But some of them, yeah, some of them had a great time eating. They had more fun eating than they did working. So uh, it was a nice break for them, definitely. (laughs) Let's talk some more about the cast and crew. Uh, a lot of great performances, but uh, behind the scenes, a lot of folks on this uh, set were really just enjoyable to work with. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jeff Bridges, you know, it was fun to work with him, an amazing guy. Chris Cooper, always intense. I remember one of my first jobs was on the horror movie The Ring, and he is in a deleted scene and never made the cut where he played a um, arsonist in prison. And Naomi Watts' character at the end of the film, to get rid of this videotape, goes and plays it for him. So no big loss if this arsonist dies in prison. And he was so scary just walking through base camp in in the mode of this character that it it freaked me out. He's he's so great in whatever he does. Fantastic cast. And let's not forget, you know, the legendary jockeys, Chris McCarran, Gary Stevens. Speaking of Jeff Bridges, I think one of my souvenirs of the movie is... The book he put together, he took his own personal photos, he had them developed, and bound in a book that I believe he signed, or he just signed mine. I don't remember if mine is signed, but I will say that I love the book. I'm in the book, and the story behind that's great. There was a, a guy named John Humber, who was a production assistant who ran our base camp, which um, is no small task on a job like this, coordinating dozens of casts, dozens of stunt folks every day with hair, makeup, wardrobe, getting everyone ready. And I remember one particular night, there was kind of a a satellite trailer just out closer to set. I happened to be walking by when they invited the cast. And I said, John, I'll I'll get this one. I'm close. I poked my head in the trailer and Bridges was there, Chris Cooper. And uh, he said, Mike, hold on. And he took a photo right there. It was a panoramic of him and and me and the cast. And that made the book. And that was the one and only time that John Humber didn't invite the cast to set. And I ended up in that book, and that <laughs> didn't play too well when that book came out between me and John. But uh, I, I love it. You know, my picture is treating Elizabeth Banks. It was funny. It was that scene in Keeneland when they were doing a scene where they were standing up, and they went, yay, for the horses. And 
Jeff accidentally hit Elizabeth in the nose. And so they called, you know, like, Thomas, come up, take a look. I said, all right. And of course, he takes a picture of me treating Elizabeth Banks. And so that was kind of cool. He's a great guy, a really gracious person to work with. Same with Elizabeth Banks, for that matter. One that really stuck with me was William H. Macy's announcer role. He takes every character that he is given and just knocks it out of park. Yeah, that was uh, Bill Macy playing uh, TikTok. Legendary announcer announced a lot of uh, Seabiscuits races. I think they shot uh, William Macy out pretty quickly, too. I, I, he might have been a cover set. I feel like we probably shot him out in a couple of days. One of the scenes that struck me, and I'd like to hear more about how it went together, was when the jockeys were actually fighting on the horses. But those looked like they were really difficult to, to shoot. Did they shoot those, to your knowledge, on the USS Seabiscuit, or were there other ways to capture that? Okay, the first, the, the Bud Boy race, where he actually gets pushed off, uh, the jockey was actually Booger Mitchell. His real name is Galen Mitchell. Um, that one we actually set up with one slow horse and one fast horse. The horse we used for him to get pushed off was actually a trick horse trained to, uh, once he lost his rider, he wasn't going to run off on his own into the sunset. He was, you know, in control. And then there were a couple of others that we set up where uh, we got two very qualified jockeys to bounce off of ex-race horses, not real race horses that were then active, uh, so they could do a lot of bumping and shoving. So most of it was, was actually done on real horses. That reminds me that when filming these complicated scenes, there was a call every day where there was a small racetrack on the floor. And then Gary with the jockeys and the ADs and stunts would point out exactly what we were going to try to film that day on the little scale model of what the track was going to look like. So that it was very clear that every moment of filming would be as usable as possible, and that everybody was on the same page. Um, I saw that in Kentucky. I'm presuming it happened at every race day at all the locations. Well, not only are you designing the race, but you're also recreating a few historic races as well, which uh, I find fascinating. Trying to keep those distances and those same kind of dramatic moments that really happen on the racetrack and and, and recreating them here, I I found pretty fascinating. When we started this movie, it was like the NFL playbook. Each jockey would get a book that had each race broken down in quarter miles. And some of those races were a mile and an eighth, mile and a sixteenth. It's, it's a pretty thick book. And it was just like a playbook for a football player. We would have to sit down, do our homework, realize what horse you're riding, what silks you're riding, and then study it. No, and then when we got there, we would have little figurines of our horse and our jockey on the floor. And we'd either have a, a, like a piece of green carpet or even in the dirt – and they would literally draw it out every day, multiple times over and over, so it would stick to, stick with us when we would go out and shoot that day. And it was so meticulous and so perfect, and recreating history, it was pretty amazing. One of my favorite kind of endings to the production was one of our production assistants ended up buying one of the Sea Biscuits. <laughs> One of our horse-loving PAs spent her per diem, purchased a horse, and had it shipped to Canada, where she was from. And I don't think I've heard from her since. Uh, just <laughs> I, in my mind, she's you know, riding a horse in greener pastures in Manitoba or somewhere. <laughs> Mark, were you there for the stunt? You know, the rigging stunt that where they were Toby, the stunt double was being pulled by the horse, and they had, had to hook up the rigging contraption on the horse, and that was like one of our more uh, challenging stunts. Had to put a rigging harness to make sure that the horse didn't kick 
you know, the, the stuntman, it was really quite a, a tricky kind of situation. And they were playing with the, the rigging harness and stuff. I thought that was, for me as a medic, that was one of our more, one of our more challenging sort of stunts. I was not there. I was there for the preparation, and I know the intensity of that. I mean, because it's a cable pull on a decelerator. I know there was an un- unfortunate accident that did happen during the shooting of that, and everybody, you know, at the end of the day is, is okay now. That was probably the closest thing in Seabiscuit that was a real, honest-to-goodness stunt. In the movie, you can't tell, but it was really, really hard, a hard-hit stunt. When you guys were in Saratoga, um, I think I went from Kentucky straight back to L.A. so I could get ready for our big crowd day. Um, and uh, so I'll take an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that because the system we used for managing those 3,000 people, we designed for the movie. The Being a crowd group, we're bringing the people, but they were just coming in mass. And obviously we wanted to have precise control over the folks in the stadium. And so what we came up with was to create some stickiness on the groups and they would come in 500 at a time and we would assign them a color. And then each color would have five production assistants whose job was just to be that color. And you know, this was a large group of PAs, well beyond what we use normally on the movie. But these folks, by creating sort of stickiness among the crowd, then we could say, blue group, you move to these rows and then the blue group would go together. But these people weren't being paid, so we had to keep them incentivized. And so between moving them around like that in the smaller groups Toby coming on the microphone every once in a while and the the loudspeaker and sort of speaking to the crowd. Obviously, there's some prize and stuff to keep them engaged as well. Um, But I thought we were pretty effective in moving them around. We'd move some of them up to the front. We'd move them back and forth. We'd create some competition between the different groups. I remember they would go through their entire prep process. And then before they went in, I would say, you are the blue group. Stick with the blue group and just try to make it fun for them as a group so that they would follow our instructions. And then, for example, we didn't stop to break for lunch, but with five to seven different color groups, we could send one group quietly to lunch while we were filming with all the rest and didn't lose the entire crowd. Or some people start to wonder where the food is, but we were able to keep them organized and people pretty much till the end, I think. I don't think we had a big problem with uh, attrition of the crowd on that day. Yeah, whenever you're working with large groups like that um, who aren't getting paid, you always uh, wonder what the attrition rate is. But I think everyone had a lot of fun, and especially when you're working outside of L.A. and Hollywood, to be on a film set is exciting. Can you talk a little bit about the costuming process for that group of people? That's a good question. So they were instructed to come in long brown, gray, or black, basically trench coats or long coats as much as possible. And so when they checked in, they would go through a wardrobe approval process. Obviously, anybody that showed up in something neon or you know wearing their sneakers or something inappropriate, these folks would uh, not be allowed into the movie. Thank you very much. You're not dressed appropriately. And then we issued them plastic fedoras. Uh, the same fedoras that we were putting on the inflatable crowd. And so everybody had a fedora. So it should have been just a, a sea of hats and jackets. Um, and it's during that process while they're getting ready where we start the sort of color affiliation so that they feel like they're in the blue group. But additionally, we had a group of five to 600 people who had gone through very precise fittings and that was a separate call. Folks that we were being that were paid through our casting company and had come in weeks early and had full hair makeup and actual outfits designed for them individually. These folks, we would sort of do the best we could to place them along the poles up front and 
where they were most likely to be seen and then have the large crowd of people behind them or up in the stands and the movement to try to keep it even. But there was a lot of effort that went into it. Mark, I have a question for you. Um, Gary Stevens, was this his first time ever being in a feature film? Thomas, I do believe Seabiscuit was the first uh, acting role for Gary Stevens in Seabiscuit. He had been in the industry for a while, though, prior to Seabiscuit. So did you get the sense, did you spend a lot of time, like, helping like, Gary and some of the other jockeys in terms of, like, some of the technical aspects of filmmaking and people that were professional racers go working to film, what kind of adjustments did they have to make? God, that's such a great question. Um, you know, when you take a professional athlete, especially a jockey, and put him in, in front of a camera and he's got to ride a horse and he's got to slow down or not move, it's it's such a different world because jockeys are like the horses. They're on, they're on go, you know, press that button, and away they go and go as fast as they can, ride as hard as they can. Now they've got to readjust completely. And, and like you guys know, this business, it's hurry up and wait. 10, 12, 14 hour days, you know, your call time is 6.30. And sometimes our racing didn't even start until 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And these guys were really getting antsy. And it, some of them, it took a lot of time to adjust. Some of them, you know, days. But some of them never even got it. Some of them, at the end of the shoot, they were on it for four and five months. And they're going, I, they're scratching their head going, I just don't get this business. Why can't we just get up at 8.30 and finish at 9.30 and, and go home? <laughs> it was a huge adjustment for, for a lot of the jockeys to, you know, play movie jockeys. Hey, Mark, I wanted to ask you of the other races, do you remember specific ones or other details? I was actually in every race, but I think the one we had the most fun with was the final race, the big race, uh, where it's really that kind of Cinderella story is victorious in the end and i think it was it was a sentimental race i guess too crazy roller coaster ride throughout the movie and uh, all the jockeys that were helping us create this movie we're starting to think about oh my god we got to go back on diets and go back to work we were all sad to see it end you know and all went on to our next jobs and stuff but yeah the final race the bit you know the big cap where seabiscuit pulls it off in the end uh, that was my my favorite race of the movie Speaking of historic, historical accuracy also, I mean, one one thing that was great is we had uh, the book that was written that was such a great historical document and, and really well-researched. So that was, um, you know, something I read before we even started production, just to get my head around it all. The book is fantastic. And just in terms of the production design, I mean, not only was, you know, we need to be accurate in terms of the horse racing, but there was there's so many year period changes where you're dealing with period cars, period buildings, and um, a, you know, a lot of um, creative thinking and construction and cheating goes into you know making that all work. Even since Seabiscuit has been filmed, I mean, it's just getting harder and harder to find locations like this that still work because you know everything's getting torn down and rebuilt. With every year, it gets harder to make these period films without resorting to CG. So it, it was, a, I think, a testament to the, this film and the production design and the set building. Just incredible. One thing we haven't really talked about is cinematography. John Schwartzman, uh, my first experience was on Pearl Harbor with um, Michael Bay uh, when I was in Mexico. He's an incredible cinematographer, but he really cares about his crew. Like, John reminds me of that senior NCO when I was in the military. He, he leads, a true leader, 
but he's also a senior NCO in the sense that he's taking care of his guys. There's nobody that will go to bat for his crew like John Schwartzman. His team would do anything for him. And some of the shots that he had to pull off, um, especially in the really tight time restraints, and be able to do quick setups and have to break things down and reset things up, it's a testament to not only John's uh, cinematic ability, but just the kind of command presence he has on a set and able to make that stuff happy. People want to make John look good. It was always great for me when I was working with John's crew. You know, I think on these large-scale productions, there is an opportunity for teams to really come together, as you describe with the cinematography team. I feel similar about the AD team on this in that, as, as evidenced by the amount of films we did together and staying in touch as friends over the years, Adam Somner, our first AD, and uh, Basil Grill is our key second, I thought they ran a good team. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it was a challenging film. And, you know, I think those guys were amazing. And Adam, you know, it, it's such a stressful position tenfold on a film like this, where you have more of everything, more more people, more gear, more background, more actors. Um, Adam really is able to pull it off with a sense of humor. Yeah. You know, he kind of filters the stress. So I, I think it didn't come down to us that worked for him. You know, he was able to take on some of that stress and, and, and filter it out for us so we could go about doing our jobs. And Basil Grillo, our, our key second on Seabiscuit, you know, he's a production manager, producer now, and he's he's doing uh, great work as well. And and rightfully so. But just goes to the caliber of just the top leadership, Kathleen, Frank. They knew the right people for the job, you know what I'm saying, whether you're talking about Adam or John or it really makes a difference at the when you hire these key people, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, oftentimes, you know, those people that don't understand what happens below the line, so to speak, um, they look at the director. And yes, the director always is the name for the film, but it's oftentimes it is the other key people around them that are actually making it happen and actually really brings the quality to the actual project itself. Well, guys, a lot of good memories of Seabiscuit. Uh, it was really great uh, catching up with you guys today. Thanks very much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. And that's our show. Special thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. I love to hear your feedback. My email address is skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. .com wasn't available, but if anyone has $27,000 and wants to buy the site back from a squatter, let's talk. There's also a Facebook page. You can find us at Podcast Below the Line, one word. Next episode, my guests are all West Wing staffers. That is, they were background artists on the show, not White House employees. Hope you'll join us then.